themes. And we'd like to look at the last paragraph. It's a very short paragraph, verses 13 to 18 in chapter 3. And I'll read this before we get into our text. Basically, it's speaking about wisdom, an earthly wisdom, a heavenly wisdom, that wisdom which is from above. And it gives some of the characteristics of both. Well, of course, as children of God, we want to have the heavenly wisdom, the wisdom that comes down from above. And we want to especially notice that characteristic, those characteristics. But at the same time, we want to avoid the characteristics that suggest a human, earthly, sensual, devilish type of wisdom. So beginning at verse 13, James 3, Who is the wise and understanding among you? Let him show by his good life his works in meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter jealousy and faction in your heart, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom is not a wisdom that cometh down from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where jealousy and faction are, there is confusion and every vile deed. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good works, without variance and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sworn, I mean, is sown in peace for them that make peace. So he begins by telling us who is wise and understanding among you. Well, he asks a question. Who is wise and understanding among you? The word wise in the noun form from the Greek is Sophia. But let's notice some of the ways that the word is used in the New Testament. Some are approved, some are not approved. It's used of God in Romans 16 and 27, to the only wise God. So God is wise. But we notice here in our own text, it is the wise and understanding among you. And so here the word, the characteristic of wisdom, is applied to, to Christians. Then we find Jesus applied it to the Jewish teachers. And this is not in an acceptable way. In Matthew 11 and 25, Jesus said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou did hide these things from the wise and understanding, and didst reveal them unto babes. Well, in the context here in Luke 10, he's speaking about the 70 that he had sent out, talking about his own disciples as babes, and he used that expression elsewhere. But the wise and the understanding is those that are being condemned, or those that are being condemned here. And then there's the worldly wise. We find this in Romans 1, also in 1 Corinthians 1. Let me read from 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 20. For the word of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. The gospel is foolishness to those who don't accept it. But unto us, those who have accepted, who are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Notice it says, it is written. Now we're going to notice where it was written in the Old Testament in just a moment. 
For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning will I bring to naught. So this kind of wisdom God is not pleased with. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Well, let's notice here. When Paul asks, where are the wise? He's referring to that which was written in Isaiah 19. Isaiah asks a question in that context. Which of them can tell what God is about to do to Egypt? Now, there were the, the advisors to the king. This is during the time of King Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, uh, Hezekiah, excuse me, when Isaiah was prophesying. There were those who said, let's go with the Assyrians. They're stronger. They'll help us. Others said, no, let's go with the Egyptians. Well, that's what he's talking about here. Which of them can tell what God is about to do to Egypt? The wise, that God's condemning, said, let's make political alliance with Egypt. But what good will Egypt do to us when God crushes them? And then we notice Paul quoting also. Where is the scribe? Well, in this reference, taken from the Old Testament, Paul is referring to Isaiah 33 and 18. The scribe, in this case, is the Assyrian officer in charge of money matters. And he was figuring out how much Assyria would gain when they overthrew Jerusalem. But they miscalculated. That night, this was in the year 701 B.C., God sent his angel down and he destroyed 185,000 of Sennacherib's soldiers. In fact, he had to just go on home, almost single-handed. So that was a scribe mentioned there. 1 Corinthians 1 makes it clear that man needs to be redeemed from his wisdom and given divine wisdom. Wisdom which comes down from above. Then there's another type of wisdom mentioned in the Bible. The spiritual teachers of the gospel. And in this, God is pleased. For example, in Matthew 23 and 34, the Lord is talking about those people who were garnishing the tombs of the prophets. Prophets that had been killed by their fathers. And these people, contemporary with Jesus, said, now if we'd lived back there, we wouldn't have done this. We wouldn't have killed them. And Jesus said, well, you just like them. That's why we call you the sons of the prophets. I mean, the sons of those who killed the prophets. He says, I'm going to send to you prophets, wise men, and scribes, and you're going to kill them. You're going to crucify them. You're going to scourge them. And they're the wise men. So the Lord is approving of the wise men that were going to carry the gospel message, but not those who were going to put them to death. One other type of wisdom, believers who were endowed with spiritual and practical wisdom. Romans 16 and 19, I would have you wise unto that which is good. So here is wisdom being used in a good sense. And I'd have you simple, that is innocent and guileless, to that which is evil. So, when he's talking about being wise, he means under that which is good. And let's be simple, that is, innocent and godless, 
unto that which is evil. One brother passing through, we were in France at the time, said that he thought it would be well if he went to the nightlife in Cairo, Egypt. And also, while in Paris, if he went to the Moulin Rouge, which in French means a red windmill, which was sort of like nightlife, where they dance and all that kind of thing. I haven't been there, but uh, that's what I understand. goes on. But he thought it'd be good if he understood, you know, what the other side was like. What's it like to be in the world? Well, here's what the Lord is saying. I would have you simple under that which is evil. You don't need to know. <laughs> we don't need to know what is evil and what is bad to condemn it. 1 Corinthians 6 and 5. What cannot there be found among you one wise man who shall be able to decide between these brethren, his brethren? Paul's condemning here those in the church at Corinth who were dogs with one another. And it got so bad they were going to court among unbelievers, before unbelievers. They were picking a judge they did not believe in Christ, was not a member of the church. He says, isn't there a wise man in your midst that can help these brethren work out their difficulties and their conflicts? And so here he's talking about a wise man, one who has spiritual and practical wisdom. So of these different types of wise men that we've read about here, who is the wise and understanding among you? It would seem to include the last two that we've mentioned. Spiritual teachers of the gospel and believers that are endowed with spiritual and practical wisdom. Now James asks a question, verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? And then he answers his own question. Let him show by his good life his works in meekness of wisdom. So, <clears throat> we don't have to really pass out a questionnaire in the congregation for everybody, every saint to fill out to determine, you know, who's the wise person that has the wisdom that comes from above. James tells us their good life will identify the wise. And so when he speaks about good life, he's talking about a life that's excellent, noble, beautiful. That's their kind of conduct. Briefly, some examples. Joseph, who resisted the temptations, the seduction of Potiphar's wife. How can I do this evil and sin against God? There's your wise man. And one whose good life manifested. Or Samuel. When he got old, he said to the people, Now, have I taken a bribe from any one of you as your judge? And they couldn't answer. He had not taken any bribe. He had been honest and fair and upright in his dealings with the people. Another example. And Jesus Christ in John 10 and verse 11, he said, The good shepherd... It does something, and he said, I'm the good shepherd because I have laid down my life for you. These are examples of the good life. This good life, he says, will be demonstrated. It'll be manifest in meekness. And he speaks about in meekness of wisdom. In other words, wisdom's meekness. Meekness is a characteristic of wisdom. 
If you're wise, like God wants us to be, then you will be a meek person. But the obverse is also true. A lack of meekness proves a lack of wisdom. Well, let's look at this word meek. Meekness is not weakness. And we have Jesus to bring this uh, to our minds. Jesus referred to himself as being meek. But he's not weak. When he said, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden, Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. And on. Jesus had the resources of God at his command. But he didn't do, and he didn't use them for his own selfish interest. You remember when Judas came into the garden there and kissed Jesus? Another thing that happened, Peter took his sword and cut off the ear of Malchus. And then Jesus told him to put up the sword, for they who live by the sword shall die or perish with the sword. And then he says, if I wanted to, I could call more than 12 legions of angels down to deliver me. Now in the Roman army, a legion varied from 4,000 to 6,000, if we could just get an average of, say, 5,000. 12 times 5,000 is 60,000 angels. And every one of God's angels was super, had superpower. It was superhuman. But the Lord, you know, you'd ask for more than 60,000. Why he would need that many. But here's the point. With all of that resource and power at his command, he did not command it. He didn't want to use it. He said, I've come into this world to die. And so we find in the case of Jesus, he was meek in that he did not use his power to escape or to retaliate, but he used it to control himself. I think that's the key thought. God wants us to be meek. Gives us power over ourselves to control ourselves. Because meekness is the opposite of self-assertiveness. It's the opposite of self-interest. When Jesus was on the cross, the rulers, what did they say? Well, now he saved others, let him save himself. And even the soldiers joined in. If thou art the king of the Jews, come down from the cross. Well, he could have. That is, he had the physical power, but he did not choose to do his own, if that would be selfish will, but the will of God. So meekness is not weakness. It is power that's controlled. Meekness is the power to control oneself, It's that grace of soul that accepts God's will without resisting. In Matthew 11, 29, that we've already quoted, he said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Now, the yoke that he asks that we take upon ourselves to be his disciple is the yoke of learning. Learn of me. Learning and taking the duties and the responsibilities of Jesus. That's the yoke that he would place upon us. He goes on to say, my yoke is, is uh, easy. My burden is light. You take it upon yourself. You won't have to bear it all by yourself. I'm right there, yoked with you. 
In 1 John 5 and 3, it says this is the love of God. That we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not, your version may say, grievous or burdensome. We manifest our love to God by keeping his commandments. And those commandments are not grievous or burdensome. We know a brother, a brother in England, we're thinking about, who, who loves the world. He's a great guy. And he said to me one time, he said, doctrine of the church, the doctrine of the church is right. Can't fault that. But living the life is hard. It's hard for him. But hard depends upon where we place our love. First John 2, 16, 15 and 16, love not the world. That's our brother's problem there. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, but that's where he's placed his love. And that's why the commandments of God are hard. If we place our love upon God, they're not going to be grievous. They're not going to be burdensome for us to, to obey. And that is the difference. But he goes on, James does. From a negative point of view, one can find out that he is not wise if he has bitter jealousy and faction in his heart. He says that jealousy and faction produce confusion and every vile deed. Now we can just think for a moment about the spirituality in the church at Corinth. You know, they had a lot of problems. First Corinthians 3, Paul said, When I first came to you, I couldn't feed you with milk. I mean, I, I couldn't feed you with solid food, but I fed you with milk because you were carnal. He says, you are even yet carnal. For whereas there is among you jealousy and strife, are you not yet carnal and walk after the manner of men? So there was jealousy and there was faction there. Confusion and vile deeds abounded in the church at Corinth. He speaks about bitter, that is, harsh jealousy. And that's going to lead to anger. That's going to lead to animosity. And it might be, and maybe we're judging too much here, thinking that this bitter jealousy that James is condemning here was between teachers. You know, it begins the chapter, let not many of us be teachers because we're going to bear a heavier judgment. Maybe there were teachers vying for positions, seeking honors and praise that Jesus condemned in Matthew 23. It brought about confusion. Our very next paragraph shows the confusion that existed in those that James was writing to. He says, chapter 4 and verse 1, Wherefore cometh wars, and whence come fightings among you? I mean, these brethren were having wars? Uh, fightings, and it was among them. It wasn't with the people on the outside. They were on one in one army and fighting another army. Is in the congregation. There was confusion because of the wrong type of wisdom among them. Well, let's move on down to verse seventeen. I've tried to cut my sermon down a little bit. In verse seventeen, he speaks about other characteristics of the wise and understanding. In fact, he lists, the way I count it, eight characteristics. And he begins by saying that purity is at the top of the list. 
He doesn't just give these eight characteristics and put them in any order, but he begins by saying at the top of the list, wisdom is first pure, then peaceable, and so forth. It's first pure. The wisdom of a wise man is characterized as pure. This makes him upright, candid, holy, sincere. And the word applies to one who is innocent, free from blame, and we're not saying that he was sinless or flawless. The first and immediate effect of wisdom is not on the intellect to take it to make it more enlightened. Now think we're talking about wisdom now. What is it? What it is it not? I generally think of wisdom and intellect sort of, you know, coupled together. But the kind of wisdom he's talking about here, the first and immediate effect of wisdom is not on the intellect to make it more enlightened or on the imagination to make it more brilliant or on the memory and judgment to make them clearer and stronger, but upon the heart, upon the inner man to purify it, to make the man upright, inoffensive, good. Matthew 5 and 8, when Jesus was speaking about the Beatitudes, we're talking about pure. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. He's talking about the ethically clean, free from corrupt desires. And this purity controls the thoughts. Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. He began verse 8 by saying, Now finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honorable, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. The man that's wise is going to think on the things Paul's telling us about here. 1 Corinthians 3, 2 and 3. John said, we're children of God, and we know not yet what we shall be. But if he, Jesus, is manifested, we shall be like him. For we shall see him even as he is. And then he goes on to say, Whosoever hath this desire purifieth himself, even as he, that is the Lord, is pure. Whoever has this desire, that is to be like the Lord. Philippians 3.21 tells us in the day of the resurrection, the Lord's going to take this body of humiliation and he's going to transform it. It's going to be conformed to the body of his glory. And we're going to see. We're going to be like him in whatever ways we're not certain. Now, if we have that desire, John says, we will purify ourselves even as he, the Lord, is pure. And so... This wisdom that's from above is first pure. Albert Barnes makes this statement. He says, this does not refer to doctrine, but to the spirit, the individual conscience of men, consciences of men. Well, maybe so. But I wouldn't limit it that way. Worldly wisdom corrupts and changes God's wisdom. And we have to always be careful about that from what we read in the Bible. In Galatians 1, we'll start with verse 6, 
Paul said, I am amazed, that's not the word he used, I'm surprised, that you are so soon removing yourselves from him who called you in the grace of God unto another gospel, which is not a different gospel. Only there be those who would trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. But though we, or an angel from heaven, should speak unto you any other gospel, or preach unto you any other gospel than that which we preached unto you, let him be anathema. And as we've said before, so say I now again. If any man, angel, apostle, or any man, preach unto you any other gospel than that which you received from us, let him be anathema. So there is the warning. Worldly wisdom corrupts God's wisdom. Now there are many examples. Certainly in world church history, I should say, where God's wisdom has been supplanted by human wisdom. In fact, that is the bottom line reason for denominationalism. 